it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, uh, Andrew Root, is the Kerry Olson Bailson Professor of Youth Ministry, uh, Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. He received his PhD here at Princeton Theological Seminary, and he's recognized as one of the most important contemporary voices in youth ministry and practical theology. Andy Root's work is marked by a theological depth that's unparalleled in the field of youth ministry, and one can characterize his contribution as one of bringing theology to youth ministry uh, or bringing youth ministry to theology. His work constitutes, uh, continues to change the landscape of American youth ministry, uh, and his broader impact in practical theology also continues to grow as his contributions expand into the work of pastoral ministry and pastoral identity. Dr. Root is prolific, to say the least. Uh, most recently, he's written Faith Formation in a Secular Age, Responding to the Church's Obsession with Youthfulness, published in 2017, Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs, and Zombies, Youth Ministry in the Age of Science, that was published this year. Uh, his other important works include Christopraxis, A Practical Theology of the Cross, Bonhoeffer as Youth Worker, The Promise of Despair, the relational pastor, uh, and in about 10 months, uh, the next installment of his work on a secular age, the pastor in a secular age, uh, will also be available. But the most important thing for you to know about Andy Root uh, is that he is someone who cares deeply, not only about theology and ministry, but about pastors and what it means to do the important and theological work of ministry in real life. It is my honor to introduce to you Dr. Andrew Root. All right, that was uh, way kinder of an introduction than I deserved, so uh, thank you very much, uh, Wes. So thanks for coming back from dinner, or wherever you were, and not taking a train to New York City or somewhere more fun than being here. So I'm honored that you're here. So I want to start with a story, and then I want to tell you a kind of long story as we do this. A few months ago, I was uh, at a synod pastor's conference and finished up was done, and a young pastor, probably not that young, he's probably been, was mid-40s, came up to me, and he had this look of both confidence and despair, and he said to me, I have no idea what I'm doing. And then he said, I've been at this 15 years, and I honestly have no idea what I'm actually doing. And then he had this confidence. The confidence came back, and he said, actually, I know what I'm doing pretty well. I am pretty good. I'm a pretty good pastor. I know what I'm, I have no problem filling my week. I know exactly what to do. I think I'm above average preacher. I actually kind of think I know what I'm doing. But then that confidence cracked with this unease, and it was like he had this malaise, and he said, when I really get under the surface, I'm not really sure what I'm doing at all, and I feel like I need to start all over again. Now, when he said that, he reminded me of the young Karl Barth. Um, in his first pastorate, um, there he was, went to the pulpit and realized that he had nothing to preach and had a similar malaise that this young pastor had of what am I actually doing here? And Bart had to ask a big question of how do I actually preach in this modern age? So I want to do something with you tonight that may feel really trippy um, and hopefully it isn't too trippy or you've had enough to drink that this will just be a really fun ride. But I want us to imagine together a dinner party and I want us to imagine at this dinner party some people coming with questions. We're going to invite this pastor with his question, uh, what am I doing? And then we're going to invite Carl Bart to come and Bart's question of how do we actually speak of a living God in a modern world. 
But then this is going to get really trippy because we're going to invite the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor to come. And Charles Taylor has his own question. And if you've read A Secular Age, which is a 900-page book, which is great to keep your door open on a windy day, um, Taylor's one question that it takes him 900 pages to answer is, why in 1500, he's talking about the West, why in the West in 1500, just a short 500 years ago, was it nearly impossible to find someone who didn't believe in God? And what has happened in this short 500 years that now it's actually more difficult to believe in God in the West than, um, than to not? What's happened? So we're going to allow Charles Taylor to come and be in this dinner party with us. And the fourth person, this is a little obnoxious, we're just going to kind of use him, uh, the political theorist Jeremy Rifkin. And the reason we're going to use Jeremy Rifkin is because in his book, The Empathic Civilization, he has a very nice pattern that I think is easy to get your hands around. And because the other two people, Charles Taylor and Karl Barth, are incredibly long-winded. I mean, Barth wrote, for God's sakes, 13 volumes and died before they were finished. And Taylor, one question, 900 pages. So we're going to let Jeremy Rifkin kind of set the table for this, all right? But here's what you need to know about a Jeremy Rifkin party, if we can use that analogy. There's two things you have to know up front. One is his pattern is a bit simplistic. It's a little straightforward, um, but uh, it's helpful. And one of the things that he works with is he has these three kind of big movements he thinks occurs. He thinks civilizations find a way of energizing their, their civilization, a way of fueling it that leads to new communication patterns that often leads to what I'm calling new imaginaries, ways that people imagine themselves. Now, I don't want to just completely steal Rifkin's perspective, so I'm going to add to it. And as we go through these periods um, and try to answer these people's questions, I also want to look at what's, how ministry and the image of the pastor or the spiritual leader has changed through this. So, for instance, to show you how this pattern works, Rifkin argues that the first ever energy regime was hunting and gathering. If we go back hundreds of thousands of years, the communication pattern was oral communication, and it then led to this mythical consciousness. And the spiritual leader was a mythical storyteller, usually. Um, so I've just tricked you to be able to talk about the beginning of human history here. Um, but Rifkin's point is that these things kind of hold, hold together. If you need another philosopher, this is what Jasper would call the preaxial age. Now, the second thing you need to know about Rifkin is that he is super into thermodynamics, which is weird. Um, but he's super into thermodynamics, and why that matters for you is you're going to see as we go through these periods, and this gets really relevant, I think, for our ministries, you're going to see these periods get shorter and shorter. So they go from hundreds of thousands of years to tens of thousands of years to a thousand years. And his point is that there's an entropy bill, as thermodynamics tells us, that the more powerful these energy systems come to fuel these societies, the more they run out or create waste. So they go shorter and shorter and shorter. So let's go to a second one, and this starts to pull Charles Taylor in, and I think gets us a little bit into discussing the issue of this pastor and his question, what am I actually doing? So Rifkin explains that the second one is actually agriculture. 12,000 years ago, major breakthrough for human civilization um, to be able to actually store the sun in seeds. So again, to echo Jasper, welcome to the axial age. And there's something deeper than just kind of tribal perspective here. The script is, uh, or excuse me, the communication system is script. And Rifkin actually shows really in a fascinating way that whenever civilization, even distant civilization, say in the Middle East or South America, as soon as they figured out agriculture, quickly they formed some kind of script, some kind of writing to manage that. The imaginary at this time was a religious, or even you could think of a philosophical imaginary, or the sense that God was 
bigger than just the tribal stories and the tribal perspectives, that there was something beyond it, something outside of it. Now, this lasts for a long time. This lasts into the medieval age. And in the medieval age is when Charles Taylor gets into this conversation. And Charles Taylor talks about what he labels in his system the ancient regime. So you can think of the era here of kings and queens. And Taylor wants to argue for us that in his story of how the secular world comes about, that we have to start here. This is 500 years ago. And there's some things that have radically shifted that the pastor that I talked to after this conference just simply didn't have an imagination for. And one of the things that Taylor wants to highlight is back in the ancient regime, um, we really lived in an enchanted world, that there's this deep sense of enchantment. And people felt quite vulnerable. So a few years ago, I was teaching confirmation in my church. My wife's a PCUSA pastor, and I got tasked with teaching confirmation. And I was the worst confirmation teacher ever because I started with three kids in our small church, and they all graduated. So I ran my youth ministry to zero. So I'm, I'm terrible to begin with. But I, uh, the third kid to get confirmed, he did the classic thing maybe you do at your church where he stood up in front of the congregation on Sunday, Confirmation Sunday, and he gave his kind of faith story. He talked about why this was important. So he gets up, wonderful kid, beautiful, beautiful kid, really smart kid. But he gets up, and he just does the proverbial loose everything. And he's like, yeah, you know, I don't know. Confirmation's been good. It was fun. But, um, you know, I just think whatever you believe is just kind of fine. And Jesus can be helpful, but you don't need Jesus. And Bible's great, but it's probably done more bad things than not. Every minute he was talking, I was sliding further and further down the pew. And now I'm in the middle of an existential crisis because I'm like, I travel around the world and tell people how to do this. And like, this is what this kid in my own church is talking about. So there's a, a famous comedian who's, who has this, in his bit, he does this thing where he says, I play, he says, I shouldn't do this, but I play this game called, of course not, but maybe. He's like, I know I shouldn't do this, and it's just I just do it to waste time. But I think, like, for instance, peanut allergies. Of course. Of course. Every step should be taken to make sure people with peanut allergies are safe from peanuts. Of course. Airplanes, there shouldn't be peanuts. Of course. But then I think, and he says kind of shamefully, then I think, but maybe, maybe if we did this for two weeks, we'd be done with the problem. No, 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 of course not, of course not, of course not. And he says, I do it again, I think, of course, of course, my nephew has this. And of course, every step should be taken to make sure that no one's exposed to peanuts. But maybe, maybe if a peanut's going to kill you, you're supposed to die. No, 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 of course not, of course not. So this Sunday, I'm in the pew, I'm sliding down, and I start playing with myself, of course not, but maybe. And I think, of course. Of course our theology should be one of God's abundant grace of God's incredible mercy, of course, of course. But maybe, maybe if you don't tell 15-year-olds they're going to burn in hell forever, they don't listen to a word that you're going to say. <laughs> and one of the advantages, of course, of living in the ancient regime is you lived in this enchanted world where you felt fundamentally vulnerable, that the world was a frightening place, demons and devils were everywhere, and it was quite scary. Keith Thomas has written this great book called The Decline of Magic, talking about 11th through 13th century. It talks about when people took communion in England um, between the 11th and 13th century, they were told they had to take it twice, and that's about as much as they took it, because it was that frightening. 
It was absolutely frightening to have to take communion. The sense that you were vulnerable, a sinful person, and to take this holy thing could rip you in two. So they would only take it twice, and they took it in fear and trembling. A lot like if you tomorrow had to go get your appendix out, you would not be here tonight thinking, oh, it's going to be so fun to get my appendix out. I'm gonna be, this is going to be so fun. You'd be frightened. You'd absolutely not want to go into that surgery, but you would know the alternative is worse. So you would bear the risk of that. And his point is, in this enchanted world, we tended to feel that way. Now, if you've watched a gangster movie lately, um, or in the last two decades, you've seen um, the kind of classic moment when the priest comes to give the host, and the person sticks their tongue out, and they put it on their tongue, and then they have to stick their tongue out again. That has history going back to the Middle Ages in Ireland and England, where the biggest pastoral controversy, like they were having conferences to decide what to do with this, is that they were giving people the host, they would take it in their mouth, and they wouldn't swallow it. And then they would leave the cathedral or leave the service, and they would take it out, and then they would crumple it up and put it on their fields or feed it to their sick pig because it was magical. It was powerful. So the best way they, they got to deal with this was that you stuck your tongue out after you took it. But this deep sense that this was an enchanted reality. I have a 13-year-old son, and in our church we take communion in a circle, and you get the... The, the bread, and you say, body of Christ broken for you. And then um, the wine comes along, and you say, the blood of Christ broken for you. My son looks at the bread two Sundays ago, and he says, is that gluten-free? I said, yeah. He said, I'm not taking it. I said, I don't like gluten-free bread. And I took everything inside of me not to strangle the boy right in front of the, the table, but just a completely different conceptions. Like, nah, gluten-free, no. Like the sense that this was a holy thing that could rip his spirit apart. Just no, absolutely no conception. The things had been completely um, disenchanted for him. So Taylor's point is at this time, we lived with this deep sense of enchantment. The second element here is that the self was very porous, that things could get into the self. If you go back earlier to Augustine, great story about Augustine, um, loves his mom deeply, Monica loves him deeply. There's a story when Augustine was, I don't know, probably primary school age, he got sick. And so Monica, out of great love and devotion and, and piety, stripped Augustine down naked, got him wet, and rolled him in salt. The idea being that demons would not get inside of him if he was in salt. So my very bad joke is it appears demons like the sweet more than the savory. Boom, shh, come on. That's a terrible joke. You're supposed to laugh at that terrible joke. But even telling you that terrible joke, in no way am I afraid of demons for that. Like, it actually is a lot of work for me. I have to think if I make a joke in a theological seminary lecture hall and insult demons, one of them might put a vendetta on my head, and my plane could be in trouble tomorrow when I fly. Or when I go and drive to Newark tonight to stay in a hotel, that I, something bad could happen to me. It's actually really hard for me to get my imagination around that. But that's not the case um, much earlier, the sense of the vulnerability of the poor self. I don't know if you watched um, PBS's Victoria. Did you watch Victoria? Now you're realizing almost everything I know is through TV. So I just apologize for that. But if you watch Victoria, there was the scene when she gets pregnant in season one. And remember, she wants to go to the zoo. And everyone tells her she cannot go to the zoo. We're talking 19th century. Told she can't go to the zoo because if a pregnant woman looks at an elephant, it's very possible her baby will come out with big ears. I mean, this sense of how porous the self is that what the mother sees could affect the baby was just 
quite profound. And we just tend not to believe that anymore. Um, it, it actually is a lot of work for us to assume that something can get inside of us. The closest we get, actually, is this classic commercial. You'll remember this classic Snickers commercial. Mike, what is your deal, oh, man? Oh, come on, man. You've been riding me all day. Mike, you're playing like Betty White out there. That's not what your girlfriend said. Oh, baby. Oh, Eat a Snickers. Better? Better. That hurt. You're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. All right, so what you see, of course, is you are not you when you're hungry. There's some natural reason for it. And we tend to do this now. Like Taylor talks about this in the secular age when we think of melancholy. Melancholy used to actually mean having black bile, having something in you. Now we think of it as a psychological state. So when my 13-year-old is an absolute jerk, we tend, maybe we should, but we tend not to think, uh-oh, the demons are loose. We better enter into deep prayer and fasting. We tend to think, didn't get enough sleep. He's just hungry. And so you see how this buffer exists between the self. So in this period, um, we're talking kind of the medieval period or just the agricultural regime, the pastor ministry at this time, the pastor was really the priest, and the priest really was the manager of divine things and the sacred reader of this sacred text. I mean, Max Weber talks about the priest at this period was the manager of these divine things and the authorized reader. No pastor at this time would ever be under the malaise of the pastor I, invited, uh, I introduced you to before, that the pastor really, in some sense, was a superhero, a vampire slayer that had these very powerful things that they were in control of. And just to kind of highlight that, the pastor was powerful, a vampire slayer, a superhero, because time was very different. I mean, we tend to think of time running this way. Like if you go crucifixion, and then you move kind of linear, uh, in a linear manner, you move down to July 15th, and then you get to Good Friday 2018. That that's just kind of how things move. But the point is, in the medieval imagination, that's not how time functioned. Sacred days were closer um, to sacred events. So it's, you can't even really draw this, or you can't even really diagram this, but the day of the crucifixion, actually Good Friday 2018, would be closer to it than just an average regular July day in 2015. So you can think about how powerful the priest or the pastor was when time, the imagination of time was different, and the pastor was the one that entered people into these sacred moments of time. And then just the other element that made the pastor quite powerful at this time was that things were actually charged, that things were significant. And Thomas talks about this as well, as if you could get your hands in the medieval period on church keys or even coins that had been put in an offertory, it held significance um, and power. Now, this is just getting us started, just getting you to kind of understand where we have been. And if we're going to get kind of cheesy with this, Bart hasn't even arrived to our dinner party yet. Um, and he's just arriving now. And so this takes us to the third Rif, uh, energy regime that Rifkin mentions. And this is the first industrial revolution. And the first industrial revolution occurs, um, and I'm going to start pulling these things apart a little bit. So the first industrial revolution really is around steam and coal. And Taylor would call this the age of mobilization. And what he means here by mobilization is something profound happens, and so profound that we often miss it because it's so just deep in our bones, is that the American French Revolution happened, and it's a complete different transformation where we, the people, get to decide how we organize our lives. 
In the ancient regime, the king rules the domain just as God rules the heavens. And now we, the people, get to decide how we're going to organize our own lives. And now we, the people, have to decide to reenact this. So the communication system at this time really was the printing press. And the printing press was really needed as we were going to mobilize our lives because each citizen had to reenact this way of being French or this way of being American. So we needed to be able to communicate with each other across this. You couldn't have fake news or you couldn't mobilize this, this way um, of life. Now, any good Reformation scholar will also say without a printing press, it would have been really hard to have the Reformation, that you need this technology to have this. And, of course, if you read Taylor, you know the Reformation is a pretty big deal for him. He thinks the Reformation does some pretty significant things in our uh, Western imagination. And one of the things he wants to get at when he's talking about this age of mobilization is that what supports this to actually occur is you first need an affirmation of ordinary life. And one of the things that the Protestant Reformation does is it affirms ordinary life. And you can just hear the echoes of Luther here, of Luther really overthrowing the cultic system and now your ordinary life, what you do at home, what you do in the field, that is in honor to God as much as what you do um, at the cathedral. So the cultic apparatus is overthrown and the priest as the sole reader is also overthrown. But the pastor still is important. The pastor's job now is to prod people, to encourage people, to exhort people to live out their ordinary lives um, in a very faithful way. The second thing that occurs here that Taylor wants to highlight is we have a movement and a change from living in a cosmos, our imagination from living in a cosmos to living in a universe. So again, a cosmos is the sense that this world we live in, God interacts with it. The, sa the sacred um, or the infinite slides into the finite all the time. But particularly after the Enlightenment, we see the world as a machine, and it's closed to such things. Now, you remember this. This happened not too long ago, July 31st, 2018. That's the super blood moon. Maybe you got your kids up to see this, but if our ancestors would have uh, saw this 500 years earlier, this would have meant something. I mean, this, this would have been a message from God in some way. For the rest of us now, it's like, it was cool. It rarely happens. But we didn't assume that there was any message from God in it. Watch how Jimmy Kimmel, late night talk show host, talks about this experience. Well, uh, it was a strange and mystical day in the universe. Last night, uh, lasting into early this morning, we had a blue moon, a blood moon, a super moon, and a full lunar eclipse all at the same time. The moon pulled out all the stops to try to get us to look up from our phones. I, this is something I've been excited about this for a few days, I read about it, and then I marked it in my calendar. I told my wife, I was like, we got to get it. I wrote super blood blue moon, 529 AM. Well, that was supposed to be the ideal time. And this hasn't happened for 152 years. It's a rare thing. So I wanted to get up to see it. So I set my alarm for 525, giving me four minutes to get up and get out on the balcony. <laughs> alarm went on. I uh, turn it off. I get up. I go to the bathroom. And then I come out of the bathroom. I get right back into bed and go to sleep. <laughs> I really like in between the time I was in the bathroom, I it totally left my mind. And I have to say, I'm actually kind of glad I didn't see it because the moon, if you think about it, the moon is a little bit of a show-off. Every month it's another thing we have to watch. You don't see the sun pulling this kind of crap. The sun just hangs out. I'm up, I'm down, I'll see you tomorrow. The moon's like. Look at me, put on your safety glasses. I'm blocking the sun, everybody. 
Interestingly, in ancient times, it, they believed that the confluence of a blood moon and a lunar eclipse meant that a terrible leader had risen up to torment his people. <laughs> Did you see the State of the Union last night? President Trump delivered his first State of the Union address. All right. You see the point, though, right? First of all, he wakes up. He wants to see this phenomenon. But he can easily slide back to bed because there's no sense that maybe God, maybe some spiritual force is trying to speak to him. And then, of course, the joke about ancients would have thought that this meant an evil ruler had risen up. That's fodder for joke because we don't really believe that. That's just... I kind of, you know, that's just an effect of the universe. That's not actually God trying to speak to us. But you can see how that changes the pastor. Now, instead of people knocking on the pastor's door, it would be interesting to know how many of you had people knock on your door and saying, it's a super red moon. What does that mean? You know, should I diversify my stock portfolio? Should we kill our dog? What should we do? Like, did we do something wrong? Probably no one, particularly in your mainline churches, wondered that. But that would have been a very common thing for people to be freaked out. Amy Margo, who's my colleague who was here early in the week, talks about taking her boys out to see this. And, and she said to them, she had them both out in the yard at like 3.30 in the morning, uh, half asleep looking at this and saying, you know, boys, this, this, uh, they used to think when you would see, see something like this that God was trying to talk to us, that there might be a famine or there might be a flood. And the, her sons are like, whoa, but mom, it's just, it's, that's not true now, right? It's just the moon. It's just, it's just the moon, right? She's like, yeah, it's just a moon. Um, and that's kind of the world we live in right now. So people don't knock on your door and say, hey, pastor, what does this mean? They just go to Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he gets to tell them what this phenomenon means and how often it actually occurs. So there's this transition then from living in a cosmos where spiritual forces might speak to us to living in a universe that's ordered. And this is just a mathematical equation, and it happens every 150 years. The, uh, the third thing that Taylor wants to talk about that the Reformation kind of doubled down on is that it has this deeper move inward, that it really doubles down on this Augustine move of taking us more inner and the, the kind of movement inside the self, which is harder for the pastor as well. Because now part of your task is you have to get inside people's internal commitments. Um, you're not just managing some kind of cultic apparatus, but get people to commit, get people to find something meaningful. Now, to continue with Rifkin here, the imaginary is what he calls ideological imaginary. And what he means occurs here is that we start to have this transition in our thought where instead of thinking of living in a kingdom or a domain, we start to think of ourselves living in a nation state. And probably the best example of this, of course, is World War I. And now you could imagine if this was a dinner party, Karl Barth starts really puffing his pipe as we start talking about World War I. And the great story here in World War I that shows you this ideological conflict is that story of French and British soldiers on Christmas Eve who put away their weapons and sing the same Christmas hymns across the death, the death hell of, of their trenches. And here are these men, these young men, who read the same sacred book, who hold on to the same sacred holy holidays, but they're killing each other for different ideological purposes because one lives in a nation state called Germany and the other in France. So we start to imagine ourselves in this way. And like I said, this is starts to be very interested, interesting for Bart, of course, because Bart is very aware of his own professors um, accommodating to the war and what that actually occurs and what occurs within that. So when we go to the pastor and the minister, 
we do have this sense that the job of the pastor and the minister at this time is really wrapped up in the nation state. And Bart saw this. Bart saw that um, God had become a national God at this time and that God was no longer wholly other but had actually become this national God. And that the pastor's job was to support and uplift the mobilization of this nation state, to give this nation state a moral conscience or to give this nation state a kind of religious sensibility. And that had some importance. Remember one of my last classes I ever took in seminary, a retired pastor was teaching it, and he was just kind of the mechanics of ministry. How do you prepare a funeral? How do you run a church budget? And it was like the third week before we were done. And he got, in the middle of the lecture, he got really sad. And he just looked down and he gathered himself and he finally looked up and he said, I feel so sorry for you people. You're like, wow, this is exciting to graduate. <laughs> he's, like, I, and he's like, no, I do. I just feel so sorry for you people. It's like when I started my career, being a pastor was important. He said, I would go to the barber shop. I got free haircuts. I went to the diner. I got free meals. If I was driving too fast and got pulled over by the police, and they would come to my door and saw that I was a pastor, they'd say, sorry, pastor, and let me go. He says, I feel bad for you poor people. When you get pulled over, they're going to fine you double. They feel terrible for you. But his point, of course, is there was a time where this, being a pastor, held something significant. And I think one of the prophetic elements of Bart is he recognized this could be a problem as well, to uphold the nation state. And in, in Europe, particularly, the job of the pastor that Bart was speaking against was just using this religious language to support the kind of cultural commodification of God, that God becomes caged as a, as a kind of national mascot, and Bart sees that as a major problem. In the States, it was similar, but where God um, would be used, or the pastor was used to hold up the moral standing of America, and kind of a chaplain of the secular age, to, remember, to remind the industrial titans like Rockefeller and others to make sure that they're somewhat upstanding um, and moral. Remember when Dietrich Bonhoeffer went to Union Seminary in 1930, he decided to go, and when he decided to go, his older brother, Carl Friedrich, who was actually a, a very well-established physicist, and Carl Friedrich told him not to go. Dietrich was one of these people that you hate who actually went too fast, and he finished not only his dissertation but also his hobby um, before he was 25 years old. And he was therefore not qualified to go through the ordination process because you had to be 25. I mean, he starts his PhD at 19 and finishes it at 21. I mean, you just think, I've done nothing with my life. Like, oh, this, you know. Um, so, he, so one of the ways he was going to bridge till he got to 25 was to, um, he was suggested by his ordination committee that he go to New York City. And he actually take one of these Sloan scholars at Union Seminary and spend a year there. But most of the people that went, like Erwin Schutz, who would become the bridge that would in, uh, connect uh, Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth together, he was actually studying with Bart when he came over. Uh, Schutz was actually still a student. He hadn't finished his dissertation, and everyone else hadn't finished. Dietrich had not only finished his doctoral dissertation, but he had written his second one to qualify as a lecturer. So Carl Friedrich's like, don't go. First of all, there's nothing an American can teach you. I mean, he's a Prussian-German. They were the smartest people on earth in their own mind. And he's like, you don't, you don't have to go, and just wait till you can become a professor. But Dietrich went because what pulled Dietrich wasn't what he could learn in the classrooms at Union, but was New York City itself. And he wanted, he had a thirst for travel. So he gets to New York City, and you remember this anecdote, he gets to New York City and he just gives himself over um, to visiting pulpits of all the top preachers in New York City. He goes to Riverside and hears uh, Harry Fosdick, which you have to remember, 1930, Harry Fosdick is bigger than Babe Ruth. 
Like that was the story. If you made it to New York City in the early 1930s, yeah, it would be great to get over to Yankee Stadium and watch, um, watch uh, Gehrig and Ruth, but you had to get um, to hear Harry, Harry Fosdick preach. Like that was bigger than going to Broadway. So Dietrich goes, 1930, goes to all of these big pulpits. He writes back to his ordination committee, and he says, I've visited all these big, particularly white pulpits. And he said, you can hear anything preached in America, anything preached in America. There's just one thing you can't hear preached in America, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll hear nothing about sin, nothing about salvation, nothing about, Je uh, nothing about uh, Jesus Christ. What you'll hear about is all the news stories of the day, wrapped up and elegantly um, articulated. So Bonhoeffer, too, influenced by Bart at this period, sees that this becomes a problem, that the pastor is supposed to uphold uh, this particular perspective. So against this backdrop, against this very backdrop of this, of this time, Bart says that we have to start all over again, that there's this need to actually start all over again. And as you know very well, that this painting becomes incredibly important to Bart. Even the early Bart, and of course this would hang above his desk um, even when he died, um, in the late 1960s, and this is the Grenwald painting, the altarpiece. And this would become a significant piece for Bart. And remember what Bart says about witness is really born from this painting where he thinks witness and even being a pastor in this age where God has become essentially a mascot for, for, a, for a culture, for European cultures, is that we have to become the bony finger of John the Baptist. That become the bony finger of John the Baptist holding that strange world of the Bible um, and pointing to this holy otherness of God, that God is no mascot at all. So ministry as John the Baptist, then, um, is to proclaim God's inbreaking even in a modern world. So in a very, I think, beautiful way, Bart's saying that witness is being this bony finger and pointing to this holy other God. But here's the thing, is that as we move to our next period, this all becomes, I think, problematic. And while Bart's perspective, I think, is, think is really helpful, it also becomes obscured as we move into our next period. And as we move into this next period of uh, the second industrial revolution, or um, what you might want to call the oil and electric um, revolution. Now, you can always, it's a fun experiment, actually, when you visit a new city, you can figure out if a church was built early in the 20th century, at the end of the first industrial revolution, or kind of post-war or middle of the 20th century, and it was part of this second industrial revolution. And there's one really common giveaway. Can you guess what it is? Yeah, parking lot, right? Uh, if you go to Minneapolis, the church my wife is in, built in 1904, something like that, uh, 46th Street of South Minneapolis, you walk around that neighborhood, there's no parking lot for that church. And actually, if you walk around within about a 10-block radius, you can find a Methodist church. You can find, like, eight Lutheran churches. Uh, it's the upper Midwest. You can find a couple Lutheran churches. Um, you can find Presbyterian church. You can find all your mainline. You can find an Episcopal church. You can find all your mainline denominational churches. But none of them have parking lots. Because the idea, of course, was you go to the church in your neighborhood. You get to pick which flavor denominationally you go to, but you get up and you walk to it. Well, that becomes a completely different imagination um, particularly after World War II, where now you drive and you need a parking lot to be in it. So our most direct experience with the second industrial revolution really is the car. And the car becomes a major phenomenon. Um, and the car really is the pushing forth of a mass society after World War II, and really the pushing forth of a consumer society. And we become inextricably connected uh, to a consumer society. 
Now, the communication at this time, it sounds really sci-fi-ish. We could call it the wave becomes important. And the wave is how we communicate. And you get a little device, put it in your house, and that it actually can receive the wave. And it first comes as just sound. But then eventually, it comes with pictures. And we have this thing called the TV. Uh, that becomes really important. And that starts to change our imagination. These conditions connect with others, and we start to have more of a, a deep kind of sense of an expressive individualism. And this communication system of the wave, it both is driven by and is for consumption. Uh, it is for buying in many ways. And so we have this new kind of sense of ourselves in, in expressive individualism that uh, we should get what we want. And being alive is getting actually what you want. When I was a doctoral student here, about halfway through my program, my wife was the, uh, Cara was the Christian education director at Witherspoon Street Church. And so they asked me to teach confirmation. So basically, I'm just telling you all my horror stories of failing as a confirmation teacher. They asked me to teach confirmation, and I was deeply drunk on my doctoral studies. So I had a group of like seventh and eighth graders, not in the right mind. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get these seventh and eighth graders, and we're going to read Bart's little book on the Lord's Prayer. You know his little book, Prayer on the Lord's Prayer? I would not recommend this. It did, yeah, some of you are looking at me like, you were stupid. Yes, I was very, very dumb. And it, I have to tell you, it was like six weeks. It was horrific. We read through this thing. And they were just like, what? It's a beautiful book. I mean, it's really beautiful, especially the petitions in it. Bart is just absolutely beautiful. But these, these seventh, eighth, ninth graders were just like, ah, uh, uh, What? Well, the only redeeming week was when we read through Bart's little petition um, on praying for our daily bread. And Bart does this beautiful thing in it that's worth reviewing, where Bart says this petition is the invitation not for you to pray your wants. This is the invitation for you to pray your need. And that actually transformed the way we prayed together. When we would pray to together before, I mean, these young people, I think this is just as true of their parents as young people, separating or being able to differentiate need and want is almost nearly impossible for people living in a consumer society. I mean, we've been told since we were this high, what you need is what you want, and what you want is who you are. And so it was, it's, it's so hard to tease those things out. And when we would pray before, they would always pray for their wants. Their prayers would be things like, well, I just like want to pray because like we are playing a really hard team next week and like we really want God to help us win the game. Or I like really want to pray because like I really want a new Xbox game and like my mom's being like so ridiculous and so I really want to pray for that. Or like I really just want to like play, pray because like I don't have enough time to study for my test and I really like want God to help me get a good grade. And that's, that was just kind of the default. But when we read this about Bart saying, this is the invitation not for you to pray your want but to pray your need their prayers completely changed. And they would pray things like, I need to pray for my uncle. Because I don't have all the information, but it seems like his drinking might be back. Or I really need to pray for my friend. Because she's just really depressed. And I'm worried about her. Completely different. But I think it's really hard for a pastor in our age to separate the difference between want and need. And this whole even communication system perpetuates that reality, that you are what you want, and you should get what you're interested in. And just think about how the TV does that. I have vivid memories of being like in sixth grade in cable television, I'm old, cable television coming to my neighborhood, the little suburb that I grew up in. It's like the greatest day of my life. I remember sitting in the basement, waiting for the cable guy to tighten the axial 
and my sister and I sitting down there and planning out what we were going to do. We were going to watch MTV. That was back when they showed videos and not just New Jersey, uh, Jersey Shore episodes. We were going to watch MTV, and then at the commercials, we were going to go over to the Cartoon Express on the USA Network. Some of you, that was the greatest thing ever, because that was like cartoons outside of Saturday morning. But we, it was this unbelievable world for us of being able to watch whatever we were interested in that whatever we were interested in was what mattered and we could do that. So this starts to change our very imagination of ourselves in this deep form of expressive individualism. Connected to this then, we have the imaginary at this time becomes a therapeutic imaginary. In therapeutic language, almost, it, we almost don't even see it anymore, that it just slips out of us. Probably if you're talking tonight and you have enough wine and you start to talk about your last session even, all the therapeutic language you didn't even know would come out of you. It's like, oh my gosh, my last, my last session meeting, I swear my session's pathological. I mean, I, they really are. I mean, you should have saw how much anxiety was in there. I mean, there was a few people who are totally doing transference on me the whole time. And even Gus, Gus had this Freudian slip about money. It was crazy. I mean, the way therapeutic language just slides out of us is pretty amazing. Um, and this does perpetuate the sense that we are first feeling self-actualizing individuals with want and with choice. So these very conditions then create what Taylor calls the age of authenticity. And so that we now exist in this age of authenticity. We could probably spend the rest of our time just talking about the age of authenticity, but you know the age of authenticity because we are living maybe at the high point right now of the age of authenticity. Now what the age of authenticity is, is it is, and Taylor I think is really helpful on this, is the age of authenticity is an ethical perspective. And the ethical perspective of the age of authenticity says this. It says every human being has a right to define for themselves what it means to be human. No other human being can tell another human being what it means for them to be human. That every person has to find their own original way to be themselves in any structure, any system, any thought pattern that restricts anyone's freedom to find their own unique way of being them is out of bounds and is wrong. And this is the age that we live in now. And the point that Taylor's getting at is that this is a post-60s, late-60s phenomenon. That it is a romantic ethic that comes into our culture and that we now all live with this in a pretty significant way. So Taylor's point is this becomes a new way of really living where your own unique expression of who you are becomes really significant. Now the other thing that this connects to, which I think is really fascinating and takes us back into BART, is that this age of authenticity, this romantic way of finding your own unique way to be yourself, actually is birthed out of a very different perspective, in a very cold, sterile one. And it's what Taylor actually calls the imminent frame. And the imminent frame, I'll, I'll, I'll just give you a quote from Taylor himself to explain this. He says, the imminent frame is a constructed social space that frames our lives entirely within a natural rather than a supernatural order. It is the circumscribed space of the modern social imaginary that precludes transcendence, that assumes all the world is, is natural and material. And one of the things that I think is amazing about Bart, and that we have to continue to honor Bart, is I think Bart is a theologian who addresses the imminent frame. I think in 1914 and or even earlier, he recognizes that the imminent frame is coming, and he actually finds a way inside the imminent frame to give us an incredibly deep biblical theology, which is no small task at all. But this imminent frame continues to exist here, and what happened is something that Bart couldn't see. And what Bart couldn't see is this very movement that out of the imminent frame comes the age of authenticity. 
And so these things actually come together. This uniqueness to find yourself, this romantic ethic, is actually born out of a reductive perspective that says there's, there's no meaning in the world that isn't natural material. You don't, there's no mystery. There's no spirituality. People actually can't live with that at all. And so they find all sorts of unique ways to live out a kind of spiritual framework. And I don't think Bart could see that. But what happens is these two things come together in our modern world, in the world that we share now. And what Taylor says happens, which I think you feel on the front lines as a pastor, is that this age of authenticity, which is an ex deep expressive individualism, and this imminent frame that says there is no transcendence, there's no mystery in the world, there's just natural answers to everything, it starts to squeeze organized religion really hard. It starts to squeeze it, and what essentially happens is it squeezes it so much that organized religion explodes. And it becomes what Taylor calls the Nova effect. And the Nova effect is all sorts of third options. Now it becomes just as legitimate to the neighbors in these neighborhoods right now to make eating kale and getting their kid into Yale a religious perspective. Yoga is just as important. I mean, as a pastor, hi. Why do I need to come to church? If I can go to the mountains, I find my spirituality there. Why, 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 why isn't that not good? No, my spirituality is this chat group I have where we talk about old movies from the 1940s or 1950s. That, that's, that, that's where I get my meaning. And so Taylor's point is that these reductions give this explosion. Now, I, what I think, of course, occurred is Bart couldn't see the Sonova effect. Well, he couldn't because he had died before it occurred. But I think when we look at Bart's legacy through the Nova effect, it gets distorted. And I think when we look through the Nova effect, some people run back to Bart and I think wrongly see him as somebody who can buttress and hold up doctrine when doctrine's being undercut. And they take on this hard neo-orthodox form and say they're going to use Bart to find some kind of safe place for doctrine inside this world. I think it's a distortion of Bart. I think it hollows Bart out. Others have looked through the Nova effect and looked at Bart and said, this, this man can be no use to us at all. How can we do this? And they've just looked at more praxis-generated theologies and say, Bart is passe. We couldn't use him. I'm thinking of someone even like the, the practical theologian Don Browning, who looks at Bart and says, this could never help any real people living in the late 20th century, 21st century. But again, I think those are both a distortion. But what Bart couldn't answer is what happens inside of this ANOVA effect. And one of the things that happens inside this ANOVA effect is that the religious, for us, we have to think that the religious marketplace has become unregulated. We're now living in a time where, to use an economic model, religious markets are completely unregulated. Um, and dare I say it, when this happens, say late 60s, early 70s, the main line is over. The main line is no longer the main line. We're holding on, but it's, it's been pretty much done for 30 or 40 years as the kind of primary expression of this. And we're trying to figure out what to do um, after this. But also what happens then inside of this is that the image of John the Baptist and the bony finger gets completely obscured. It becomes hard for people to make any sense of this. And the, the, the finger of John the Baptist gets in, obscured inside the Nova effect, and a new image of the pastor arrives. A, a kind of new ideal type, if you will, happens. And this new view has to affirm authenticity inside the Nova. And it kind of works, kind of doesn't. But what, of course, arises as the image of the pastor is the megachurch pastor. The megachurch pastor becomes the pastor. And the megachurch pastor, then, uh, is the pastor molded for and as a response to the Nova effect. Now, 
it works, kind of. It particularly works, let me be a little snarky towards megachurches, uh, forgive me, but it kind of works in the sense that it does find legitimate ways to keep religion relevant for some people. Now you could hear the Roman brief in Bart's critique against religion in its first place, but it finds a way to keep religion um, relevant. But it does, I think, obscure revelation in a pretty significant way. What it does, and I think Rick Warren is a really good example of this, and if you read Rick Warren's biography, um, The Prophet of Purpose, it's very interesting. And in some ways, you have to commend Rick Warren. I mean, in, in a real way, he's a genius. He's an absolute genius. But Rick Warren, basically what he can sense, because he grew up in Northern California, then spent time in Southern California, and California really is ground zero of the age of authenticity. It's where it really explodes, and media distributes it from there. Having grown up there, Rick Warren recognized that people in the, inside the age of authenticity were on the pursuit for purpose. They needed to find it. And that these things were unregulated. There are all sorts of options. And what he essentially did for purpose of mission is that he relativized Jesus to just one other option in all those options you have. So you can go for exercise as your religion. You can go for hiking in the mountains. You can go for eating kale. You can go for yoga. You could go for Jesus. And Warren allows, and this whole movement, not just him, but the whole movement, allows Jesus just to become one option within the age of authenticity, within the Nova effect. But he just bets on Jesus. He just bets if we put, make Jesus one option, Jesus will actually win out. Jesus will actually be the one who can fulfill your purpose. Now, at one level, that's brilliant. At another level, it completely relativizes revelation on the same real level as the NFL or something. And if you find meaning and purpose in it, it's there. So it obscures that bony finger, I think, in a pretty significant way. So Jesus just becomes an option in the, in the Nova. Um, and Jesus becomes your friend in a kind of benign kind of way. And the Bible is no longer a strange world at all. The Bible really becomes a self-help book in many ways to help you find the purpose you've always been looking for. And the pastor shifts to a life coach for the most part. I'm being snarky here, but it shifts to being a life coach, and it does respond to where we're at in the age of authenticity. And just think about how the wardrobe of the pastor changes. Changes from the robes of the manager of divine things to the clerical collar of the chaplain of the secular age to golf attire of the vice-giving friend who can help you find the purpose that you were always looking for. So the finger, the bony finger of John the Baptist gets put in the pocket of the pastor to be authentic. And the pastor actually, his or her job, is to become a resource. A resource that you can use to help you find your own unique, authentic way of living your life. Now, I don't want to minimize this too much. We're all in this culture. We feel this. Uh, but it changes things in a great deal. Ministry at this time changes as well. And ministry really becomes about programs of intervention. And connected to the communication system here, the thing about programs is that programs like TV programs, like radio programs, they always run on numbers. They just do. Great example of this, of course, thank God for Netflix, that um, Arrested Development has been back. But remember, Arrested Development, 10 years ago, won Emmy after Emmy for Best Comedy. And it was canceled. Why was it canceled? Not because it's standard of art or standard of television didn't meet some level. It's canceled because there wasn't enough eyeballs on it. And the way this works is you need numbers. Numbers are important. 
And so the pastor then has to run these programs and has to become an entrepreneur and has to hustle to get the numbers to this program. And you've probably, we've all done it, even at this conference. Almost the first thing pastors ask each other is, how big's your church? We do it all the time. So programs are needed, too. In this competitive religious marketplace where the religious markets are unregulated, how many churches do people drive by on an average Sunday before they pull into your parking lot? Two? Three? Four? Five? Six? A lot. And they can go. They'll go 35, 40 minutes sometimes to go to the church they want to go to. What leads them to pull into your parking lot instead of another? It's not your tradition. I mean, sometimes some people are like, oh, i got to find a Presbyterian church. My, my dad was Presbyterian. My, my grandmother was Presbyterian. Sometimes, but very rarely now. They usually go because that church has something that we want. Uh, that church has the programs, the children's programs, the youth program that we want. So the program becomes the magnet that gets these mobile people in cars to pull into your church parking lot instead of pulling um, into another. And the building becomes important but very different than the ancient regime. In the ancient regime, the building was important because heaven fell to earth in that building. You could get inside that building, you were protected from demons. Now the building is incredibly important for the megachurch pastor, but it's important because it houses the programs that gives people the resources um, within them. And so it becomes important that way. That's why Rick Warren, one of the, again, the thing you have to admire about him is that when he started his church, at Saddleback starts in a living room with like eight people. He had one mantra, 20,000 people on 100 acres. 20,000 people on 100 acres. 20,000 people on 100 acres. Never wavered from that. And he, I don't know, what, his 25th anniversary, they had 24,000 people at Angel Stadium, and they're on 120 acres in high real estate Southern California. But the idea was the acres were just as important as the people because the acres get you the building that becomes the hub for authenticity seekers to come and get the resources they need to find their purpose and find their meaning. So the pastor is no longer John the Baptist standing between the strange world of the Bible, exegeting, 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 but the pastor becomes a Shark Tank-inspired entrepreneur. So that's always busy, busy, busy. I don't know if you remember this. I think it's a great kind of ancient church um, thing to remember is that Gregory the Great, when he would ordain his priests as bishop, he would look at them all, this is very kind of bardy and overtones, um, would look at them all and wave his finger in their faces and say, you better not. You better not be too busy. He said, because your job, your job is to contemplate the Trinity. Try that with your next personnel committee. <laughs> yeah, I need like 25 hours a week so I can just contemplate the Trinity. And they'll say, you might want to find another church. Um, and we, we, we don't want to keep you hired here. But that's a completely different perspective. And now at the most successful, i put that in air quotes, the most successful of these churches, they don't even have preaching. They actually, you know, you go to Mars Hill, uh, the church Rob Bell started, he was never the preaching pastor. He was the teaching pastor. And the teaching pastor gives engaging sermons that help you work on the self and find the life you need to live. Now this takes us back, all the way back to the pastor I started with, who didn't know what he was doing. And he had good reason to not know what he was doing. And the more I talked to him, the fascinating thing is that he found himself stuck between two poles and moving back and forth between them. When I would talk to him, he would go through these moments at one point where he had deep self-loathing. And he felt to himself like, I, I just, I'm not good enough. He, had, he was a good pastor, but he, well, he hadn't built a megachurch. He hadn't built a huge megachurch, and he blamed himself for that. 
if only I could build a megachurch. I don't know why I can't do that. But, of course, then that, he couldn't live in that very long, and then he would swing to the other parallel where he'd blame his people. I just don't understand why they can't be committed. I mean, if they just could be the kind of people who would read their Bibles and be committed, then, I mean, I wouldn't have to race so hard to try to meet every bleeping need that they have. So he's moving back and forth between self-loathing and actually blaming his people. He was a good pastor, but he hadn't built that mega church, and he blamed himself for that. So this is true. I mean, one way to be a pastor in this kind of secular age we're talking about is to build a megachurch. And good luck. Maybe you'll win the demographic lottery, and that will happen, and God bless you. I guess another way you could be a pastor is just to police people on Twitter and uh, try to build your own Twitter platform that way. But we won't, we won't go into that uh, right now. But maybe it would actually be helpful, inspired by Bart, to return to the Grenvald painting. But now returning to it, what if we looked at the other side of the painting and actually used this as inspiration? So maybe inside the Nova effect, this other side could be really helpful. And if you look at it for a minute, it's beautiful. In this side of the painting, you have Mary Magdalene on her knees, and you have John, the beloved disciple, embracing Mary, the mother of, of Jesus. And here, too, you have fingers, and fingers in their own way in proclamation. I've read too many books on this painting, and we know that, that uh, the painter loved hands and loved um, painting hands. And you see Jesus' hands are very profound. Uh, Bart was captivated by John the Baptist's hands. But Mary Magdalene's fingers and hands are in their own kind of proclamation. They're deeply in prayer. And here, too, you have another John, John the beloved disciple, like I said. And he's in his own proclamation. And his own proclamation here is embracing um, his neighbor, sharing in the suffering, sharing in the death experience of Mary, the mother of God. And so in the foolishness, if we balance both sides of these, that maybe being a pastor is in foolishness continuing to preach, to remember the right side of the painting. But it also may be a big piece of being a pastor in a secular age is teaching people to pray, to actually inviting and teaching people to pray. In just a few minutes, we'll um, celebrate uh, Eugene Peterson and the legacy he's had for most of us. And one of the beautiful things that Peterson taught us is that being a pastor is teaching people to pray. And maybe this becomes a big thing that we do, that it is still being that bony finger. But now in this age of authenticity, now in this age of the imminent frame, it's teaching people how to pray. So John bears this suffering in prayer. And then there's this deep sense of co-humanity in this moment, which also echoes Bart's dogmatics in its own way, this importance of co-humanity on this other side. Um, and it's helping people actually have an open take to reach for God, to be open to this. So maybe this is what the pastor does in a secular age, is that the pastor joins persons in prayer uh, to, open their, to have open eyes and open ears for revelation, that it uses their proper names. And Peterson has taught us that the pastor names things appropriately, that we use people's proper names and teach them um, to pray. And you know at the end of his really beautiful memoir, he tells the story about Tuesdays and how he had learned all the kind of social scientists and all the therapeutic methods that had been taught to the pastors um, there in Maryland, uh, that he had learned all those. And he goes to Maryland 
and he feels like he has this pastoral failure where he tries to help her with all these expertise and it doesn't work. And then he relays beautifully, going back to her a few weeks later, and this time just embracing her. And as a pastor, in many ways, symbolically, like John, the beloved disciple, does, and then he asks her, what can I do for you? And in this beautiful prophetic way, she says, will you teach me to pray? Will you teach me um, to pray? So maybe this is what the pastor does, is that the pastor teaches people how to pray their stories, how to articulate their stories inside um, of a congregation. So in our secular age, the pastor's job is to create space for persons with proper names to be prayed for um, and to pray, which also is beautifully where Bart's dogmatic ends in prayer, that prayer becomes this significant piece. So what does this look like? Let me end by just telling you a few stories. I had a friend who was a pastor of a Presbyterian church, and they were going to have their uh, yearly um, session retreat. And he knew that there was going to be big issues politically on this session retreat because they had big issues to cover, that blood could be spilled, like what color should the new carpet be in the narthex. So he was pretty worried about this. So he decided he needed to do something like getting these people to pray for each other. So you don't know what, what conference he was at, he can't remember, but he had heard that of this exercise. And what you did was take four or five chairs and line them up, and then four or five chairs, and then line them up kind of facing each other. And on one side, he put a pad of paper and a pencil, and he asked people to sit across from each other. And the people who had the pad of uh, paper and the pencil were supposed to sketch the face of the person sitting next to them. And they would do this for five minutes, and then he would say, switch, and they would switch. And you can imagine how this, how this went, that they started, and people felt so uncomfortable. And were making faces at each other and acting weird. But they settled in after one round of this. And so it went on for about 35 minutes. He got done, and he decided to debrief this with them. And he said, so what was this experience like? Now, there are two people on this session that I think every church has in them. One was Jody, and Jody was about 35 years old. She'd stumbled into the church after a job transfer. She was filled with energy and positivity, and she just helped out. She was just a kind of workhorse for the church, always with positivity, always with lightness. She funded the church's beach service every year out of her own pocket. During a pastoral transition, she was there. She was just, she was wonderful to be around. Well, the church also had another person that probably every church has, Dave. And Dave's the kind of guy who's really hard to be around. And he knows everything about everything. And he's like the guy who tries to fix the doors before the service, but then locks everyone out of church. He's a person like at one session meeting, he said, you know, we really need to get giving up. And then you find Dave shaking down new members who have just visited the church for cash on hand. He's just kind of bombastic. He's the kind of guy who told you why buying a Toyota was a stupid idea and the way you're raising your four-year-old is completely ridiculous. He's just that kind of guy. So they debrief this experience. And he says, so what's this been like? What was it like doing this? And they were like, it was weird. But yeah, we got into it. Yeah, it was meaningful. And they kind of had this experience of doing this kind of embodied way praying for each other. Except they get to Dave, and they say, Dave, what was this experience like? And Dave says, yeah, 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 it was, it was all right. He says, except, except when Jody was drawing my face. And he says, when Jody was drawing my face, I felt judged. I felt like she was belittling me. And he just kind of goes off. And just says, I felt, I felt so intimidated by her. And now everyone, the oxygen is just sucked out of the room. And everyone can't believe that bombastic a-hole Dave is intimidated by Jody. But he's just, I'm so angry. I, I, I just felt, I, just, I, I didn't even know what to do with myself. And finally, my friend kind of gets a hold of the meeting. He said, I, 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 Dave, thanks. 
thanks so much for sharing this. This is really important. But do you think you could narrate this experience for us? I mean, do you have any sense of why you're reacting like this? I, I don't know. I don't know. She's just judging me. I just felt like she was judging me. Dave, Dave, we, we, we get it. Um, but can you help us into this experience a little bit? And then he stops, and he pauses for a while, and he looks down. And my friend has no idea what's going to happen. Like, is he going to stand up and explode? People are really anxious. And then he starts. He says, no, no, yeah, that, no. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. And he starts again. Yeah, no, that's it. And then this beautiful way where his humanity all comes back, he says, well, many of you know that I have a daughter. Um, and you know Dawn. You've known her for a long time. And I told many of you that she just moved back home with us. And she's about Jody's age. And you asked, will she be coming to church now? And I said, no, she won't be coming to church because she works on Sundays. But I was, wasn't telling you the truth. She never worked on Sundays. She worked on Saturdays. But that doesn't matter now at all anyhow. Because see, Jody, uh, Dawn had to move home with us because um, she suffers from severe depression. And she started missing so many shifts she couldn't pay for her apartment anymore. And now she's really, she couldn't go for the last two weeks to work and she's lost her job. And I guess what it is, yeah, this is it. I said, yeah, guess what it is, is when I look at Jody, I see who Dawn could be if, she didn't, if the depression wasn't there. And everything changed. He had confessed the depth of his humanity. It was a moment of co-humanity. It was a moment of prayer. And they prayed for one another. I'll go to Newark and fly out tomorrow. And one of the vividest memories I have was um, interviewing for jobs and coming back and forth from Princeton to Newark. And we would park our car. We were students. We didn't have much money, so we'd always park at some off-airport lot. I don't know if you've ever parked at an off-airport lot at Newark, but like all of a sudden, The Sopranos makes a whole lot of sense. Like You walk through there, and you're probably like, every fourth car, there's a dead body in one of these trunks. I just don't. So that's where we parked. And, you know, so we take the shuttle, and you get a business card, and you're supposed to, as soon as you arrive, you call that number, and then the shuttle is supposed to, uh, the van is going to pick you up and take you back. So I call when we land, and no one answers. So we get our luggage, and I call again, and no one answers. I call again, and no one answers. Finally, I call, and someone on, like, the 12th ring answers. Oh, all right, I'll, I'll be right there. I'll meet you upstairs. So this person arrives in this van puts our luggage in. We have like a six-month-old at the time. We get into the van to drive, you know, the half mile to the off-lot off parking, and he forgets to shut the back of the doors. And we're like with a baby, like, ah, oh, the doors. And he pulls over, and he gets out, and he shuts it. He comes back in, and he says, I'm so sorry. And then he drives, and he starts telling us his experience. He says, I'm so sorry. I'm on hour 19 of the shift. And now we're looking at our baby and just like, God, maybe survive this ride, you know. Um, and then he's, he's in this beautiful way. He says, you know, I just got out of jail. I got this job. And it's part of my parole that I got to keep this job. And my boss knows that. And I've told him I needed to get out. And he doesn't care. And he says, I just, I hadn't seen my kids in six years. And if I lose this job, I go right back in. And I don't know what to do. And we listened to his story, but we had a lot of self-interest, just like, get me to the parking lot. My baby's in peril. So he gets us there. He parks, drops Kara and little baby Owen off at the car, and I go in to pay with a credit card. And he swipes my card, and I sign. I don't know why I said this. I feel embarrassed even telling you what I said. But he signed it, and I said, 
I said, hey, man, we'll be praying for you. I said, my wife's a pastor. I don't know why I said that. Like, it was magic. Like, my wife's a pastor, and we'll be praying for you. And I'll never forget, his head was down, and I said that, and it snapped up. And he looked at me, and he said, your wife's a pastor? And I said, yeah. He said, his, his eyes watered, and he said, will you pray for me? Will you pray for me now? And just like Eugene Peterson told us, we got out in this godforsaken Sopranos dirt lot where murders and drug deals were going on, and we grabbed his hands. And like I said, Peterson taught us you have to name things correctly. So what are you going to say when you're going to pray for somebody? Talk about co-humanity. You have to ask them their name. He said his name was Michael. We grabbed his hands, and we prayed for him. And I'll never forget driving off, looking in the rearview mirror, and him raising his hands to God as, as this was just what he needed. That his unbelievable theology of the cross, like in this God-forsaken place, God was there, teaching him, praying for him, became exactly what he needed in this moment. Last story. I'm indulging would be too many stories. But Wes was nice enough to mention my book, Christopraxis, and one of the things I did for that book was trying to kind of get at the imminent frame and how actually people do have these experiences of God and they act, mainline people particularly don't feel like they can even say them in their churches. So I interviewed 12 people, two Presbyterian congregations, 12, uh, 12 people in two Presbyterian congregations in the Lutheran church. And I'd ask them if they had an experience where they felt like God arrived, like God had encountered them. And ironically, all 12 of them did. And all 12 of them said, I've never told my pastor this story. But one woman, I was at this Presbyterian church, big Presbyterian church in Seattle, and she came in, she's probably... 35, 38, had two kids in elementary school. She came in and she looked exhausted. She had been willing to do this interview with some professor from somewhere because her pastor had asked her to, so she was willing to talk to me. She looked exhausted like she needed to be somewhere else. And for the first 25 minutes of the interview, I thought, this is a dud. This is not going to work. And yet I had one more question, so I decided I'd ask it. And I said, uh, her name was Rachel, and I said, Rachel, um, have you ever had an experience where you really felt like God encountered you? Like, you felt the presence of God. Like, essentially, like Bart, that you felt the revelation of God in this moment. And she looked at me, and her whole disposition changed, and she said, yeah, I did. She said, I've never told this story before. She said, I've been telling you throughout this interview that I'm a single mom, but I've never told you why I'm a single mom. So I'm a single mom because um, three years ago, my husband went on a business trip, flew from Seattle to Chicago. He was gone 33 hours, and I got a phone call. And on the other line was somebody from the hotel he was staying at and said, ma'am, um, we don't know how to tell you this, but this morning the cleaning staff um, appeared to have find, find your husband in his room. Something has happened. He is no longer alive. He is at this hospital morgue. You need to call them and make arrangements. She said as they were telling her this, the whole room turned black and white, and she could feel the life just leave her body. She looked, she had, a, she had a toddler and an infant, and she tells me that she looked and she thought, my life is over. She Somehow, she said, out of body, scratched down the address of this hospital morgue where her husband's body was at, made arrangements to fly from Seattle to Chicago, go identify the body, make arrangements to fly back to Seattle, get back on a plane and get home. She knew no one in Chicago. She lands at O'Hare, she goes to the cab stand, she's got the address on this business card. She goes to the cabbie, hands him the card. They drive to the hospital morgue. She said, I should have recognized this. I should have seen this. She says, I was grounding in grief, but I should have, I should have realized he didn't drop me off up front. He parked. 
So but I walked in, and they had my itinerary, and they knew right about when I was arriving. I arrived, and they immediately took me back. She said, within minutes, I'm standing there, and they wheel out a gurney, and there it is, a body under a sheet. And she said, I knew when they pulled that sheet back and revealed my husband's body, it would break me in two. And she said she stood there, they came over, they pulled back to reveal her husband's body, and she said, I felt a hand on my shoulder, and an arm came around front with a water bottle. And she started to cry, and she said, it was the cabbie. She said, I never felt more ministered to. She said, I got on that plane, and I knew that life would never be the same. But I knew God had encountered me. I knew that I had been prayed for. I knew that I wasn't alone. And I just wonder if what it means to be a pastor in this kind of secular age is to create spaces for people to articulate those stories. Here are 12 people who had no room to say those stories, no room for those stories to be a blessing to the community, to teach us how to pray through those stories, to teach us how to witness and testify to God's action inside of stories like that. I wish what I would have said to that pastor is that I wish I would have told him that what it means to be a pastor, what we do, is that we preach. We preach in foolishness, but we never preach without prayer. And that we teach people to pray. And we teach them to pray as a witness to a God who dies and overcomes death with life. And I wish I would have told him that that may be better taking joy in this crucified God who is dead and made alive may be better than 10,000 new members um, at your church. Let me pray for us. God, we are aware that we have a big task ahead of us. But this big task does not even come near the beauty, the depth, and the joy of the gospel itself. This amazing reality that you have taken what is dead and made it alive. We stand at a moment where we need wisdom and we need vision. But we stand at a moment of hope because we know you are faithful in all things. So I pray for these people in this room that they might know that you are well-pleased and that you might give them the endurance and the strength to witness and testify, to teach people to pray and to pray. Bless us, God.